If you work with startups or plan to start one yourself, this is the show you want to listen to over the next hour. Hey guys, I'm Mark Gandy with CFO Bookshelf, and my guest is startup expert Brett Fox, who's the author of Learn How to Take a Punch. The subtitle is Building Your Startup Isn't a Marathon, It's a Prize Fight. In our conversation, Brett talks about team building, culture, leading indicators of product market fit, when to scale, raising money, and so much more. That's coming up next on CFO Bookshelf. Bruce Reed, the CFO of Practice Link, have you ever worked with startups before? Well, I I would argue that um, I, I work with a a startup now in in some ways. It's a would that a be mature, a would that be a twenty year startup? It's a twenty year startup. It's a mature startup, uh, but I think I think we do maintain some of that agility and some of that curiosity that you find in a startup. Startups are hard, aren't they? Oh my God. Well, I think uh, you and I've even talked about it that the making that leap from the corporate world um, with some of the relative safety and predictability of of a corporate world, if there if there really is any, and I, I think that's something of a fallacy also. But making that leap is uh, is a leap that's that takes some takes some takes some thought and some courage. You know that I write on Quora. And in fact, the reason I do is just to practice writing. It's a great way to practice writing. You don't have to make something up. Someone asks a question. Well, I can answer that question. So you're killing two birds with one stone. You're helping the person who asked the question. You're you're helping people who will search on that question down the road. And of course, you're practicing your writing skills. And since being on Quora, I've met some really great people. In fact, I've even have had coffee with people in Columbia, Missouri, who drove over from St. Louis, Kansas City. So it's a great platform of getting to know people. That, that's how I met Peter Lynch, who one of our most popular episodes, who is the creator of A Simple Model. Well, also on Quora is a guy named Brett Fox. And Brett is everywhere, especially in the question area of startups. So listen to this. I've got 5 million answer views almost on Quora. That's a lot. I mean, it is a lot. That's a lot. So if I ever want to deal with my humility or being more humble, I can just look at Brett's numbers. He's got 40 million answer views. 40 That's million. a lot more. That's a lot. That's a lot more. more. But he's been featured in HuffPost, Forbes, Apple News, and I'm probably leaving out some other uh, publications. This guy is good. And his name should not be a secret. I mean, this guy works with other startups around the globe. He's sharp. And I love his humility. When you talk to him, you would not know that he's some, I don't, I don't want to use a word that's not him, but this guy, he knows what he's talking about in the world of startups and his book, he has a book that just came out uh, in September. And because this show uh, th- this will have a long shelf life, this episode, I want to say the year 2020. So the name of the book is Learn How to uh, Take a Punch. And I have a feeling, Bruce, you're going to be getting it, aren't you? I am. I am. I'm looking it up right now. It's, uh, it's a value. And, it, and, it, and just looking at, the, looking at the description, this looks like a must read. And I thought you were going to say, Brett, you need to raise the price of your book. I mean, it's worth, I mean, <laughs> I mean it's, I mean, this, again, there's a, ton of information. The one thing I, I kept, I, I, Brett is so patient because I said, Brett, I'll send you an interview arc. Now the interview arc is not, it's not a detailed list of questions. It's just, it's, it's like a checkerboard of topics. So no one really knows the exact questions we're going to ask, but I said, I'll get you the interview arc next week. Well, another week, uh, elapsed. I mean, I was having to take my time reading this because it's packed with so much information. It's it's a great book. So and, and it's a mini MBA for for startup founders. I mean, this is the book. And and I'm not just saying this. If you're a startup founder, I mean a lot of people are gonna read Eric Reese, the lean startup. They they might come across Steve Blank, whom I'm a big, big fan of, but hey. Read Brett's book first. 
Uh, Bruce, we had we had a lot of neat topics. I mean, we hit uh, grit and fanaticism. Uh, we we hit recruiting and building the team. Uh, what's the wow. hardest thing for a CEO? We hit culture. Uh, the culture piece the segment is really great because he talks about Netflix, Zappos, and Sandy Koufax. Sandy Koufax. <laughs> so what does Sandy Koufax have in common with Netflix and Zappos when it comes to culture? We talk about fundraising. Uh, we t- oh, this is great. We talk about product market. We talk about leading indicators for product product market fit. And when to scale, hey, when not to scale, to VC or not to VC. So, Bruce, just a lot of great topics. And I, I've listened to this already twice. You're right. I do. I want to listen to Brett. So why don't you go ahead and roll the interview? We're going to get, Brett, we're going to get to your book here in just a minute. So I want to hear your origin story. And I now I do want to pull out one quote from the book before you mm-hmm. share your story. You do say, this is great, at 3 a.m., I wake up from my nightmare. Uh, We couldn't close funding. My wife is sound asleep from me. I'm shivering, even though it is 72 degrees. I hate shivering. And I I can just see you just writing that last line. But before we get into startups, the world of startups, tell us about your background story. I want to hear your origin story. Yeah, no, no problem. So, if you go backwards from there, which, by the way, is a true story, uh, and the thing that you're talking about is absolutely a true story. So if you go backwards from when I, I was CEO of my company, and I, was, I went through about a year fight with one of our investors, which just about killed me. And it was unbelievable. And there were times, literally, where I would wake up in the middle of the night shivering, uh, when I was at work, I'd go for a walk and it would be 85, 90 degrees outside and I'd be shivering. And that was just my fear. And, and thinking to myself, I'm going to lose everything that I've worked so hard for, you know, because of this fight that I was in with, with our investors. So my origin story goes all the back. You're from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest, actually. Um, and I'll let you off the hook as I'm looking at your cardinal stuff because I'm actually from Chicago originally. So I'm a Cubs fan. Sorry, uh, just we all have our we all have our sins in life, uh, but that that's mine. So. Blue Brock, Blue Brock. Yeah. Oh yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, I would, I, that's what can you say? What was that for Ernie Broglio? Is that right? Yes, that, that is good memory. Yep. yep, I remember that. We must so, be about uh, the same age. Yeah, probably. And uh, it's really sad he just passed away. He did. Um, Blue Brock did. Very very sad. So. Anyway, so I, I grew up in Chicago, um, and then my family moved to New York for a couple of years, and then to California. And I've been in California ever since. And I began my career as an engineer. So I started off as an engineer, and I really thought my whole career was going to be as an engineer. That's what I was going to do. That was going to be the way I was going to build out my career. But about three years in, um, I started getting bored. And it wasn't that I wasn't technically challenged, but I thought there was more to uh, business than being an engineer. So I went back to school, got my MBA. I was going to school full-time, getting my MBA full-time. And all of my experiences that I had as an engineer led me to this wonderful company called Maxim Integrated Products, which, if you go back in time, was one of the 10 most successful companies on the NASDAQ uh, during the 1990s. And I happened to join them at almost the perfect time, right after they had gone public. And I rode that company from essentially forty million in revenue to over a billion dollars in revenue. Holy by the cow! End of yeah. what, what was your role? I mean, did you run? Well, it? I had various roles. So I started off as just a, a you could almost call it an entry level marketing person. We called it business management then. And because they were forming the organization, I was in the right place at the right time with the right set of skills. And I rose all the way up to general management roles where I ended up running and setting the strategic direction for most areas of the company. So it was kind of like a perfect set of skills for me in terms of what I wanted to do. And it was perfect for getting involved in startups. So a few years after I left Maxim, I became what's called an entrepreneur in residence, which is a pretty cool role that venture capital funds have. And VC funds will bring in people like me uh, that they want to have around their fund so that they can form businesses around them. 
And in parallel with that, you're helping them with uh, various due diligence that they need, uh, other things that they might need, uh, maybe running a business for them in the interim, which I almost did on, on a company company that was similar to the one I was starting. So there are all sorts of different things that you end up doing. And that's how I started my company. I happen to know the managing partner of this particular fund, a fund called Crossland Capital up in San Francisco. And I wrote him after I'd been fired. It was kind of funny. I was at another company after Maxim and the CEO had fired me. And uh, I wrote a note, I wrote an email to all of my network after a few weeks, after kind of figuring out what I wanted to do and said, I'm available. And a few VC funds wrote me back, including Crosslink. And uh, the managing partner, Mike Stark, who I knew, brought me up to San Francisco and we met. And, you know, he's, you know, typical VCs are very short with time. So it's like, let's just get right to it. Uh, I'm interested in building an analog semiconductor company. Are you interested in helping us? And it was, it was like a dream come true. It was exactly what I wanted to do. So uh, I said, yes. I ended up meeting with all his partners because that's the way VC funds work. They have to approve everything. The partners approved the deal and we started getting to work. And then in classic fashion of all the things you never expect to happen to you in life, this happened to me. So um, about six or seven months in, the partner I was working with essentially got fired. And one thing you learn working inside of a venture capital fund is there is more drama inside of these funds than you would believe. There's all sorts of infighting and, you know, the, the partners that are bringing in the money can be resentful of somebody else. And uh, I just got ca- caught up in all of that. And uh, the fund said, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to back your company anymore. So I was essentially cast adrift. It wasn't a big deal. And I really didn't think much of it at the time, except instead of having, I needed two investors because at the time I was raising $11 million. So I needed a second investor. And I thought, you know, I already had one. Now I needed two. So I ended up finding two investors, but it cost me time. And because of the timing of everything, this was right when the Great Recession was happening. We were in right smack dab into the Great Recession. However, I survived it. We ended up raising the money after 63 investors passed on us. Uh, we ended 63. up raising 63. 63. Oh yeah, you remember that when when you're when you're dealing with stuff like that, you remember it. So 63 investors passed on our company. Uh, we found our first investor really quickly, and we figured, oh, we're going to close our funding in no time. And then all hell broke loose because of the Great Recession and everything that was going on and essentially venture capitalists weren't funding new companies. But we hung in there. And fortunately, I had done well for myself financially so I could afford it. And I just kept building the team, kept recruiting people for when the funding would arrive. And then we just kept at it. And then once things thawed uh, in venture capital land, we were able to close our funding. But it took us two years. It's kind of a crazy story. And then I started my company. So that kind of brings us, that's my origin story, so to speak. So you've worked a lot in the startup world. And what I want to hear from you, Brad, is what are some of the biggest issues that you see that startup founders, and I know we got to be careful blanket statements, but I'm sure on one hand, you can say, I bet they're going to deal with this, 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 this. What are those five thises or four thises? Yeah, I don't know whether they're five, but I will tell you, you the big this, uh, the big this, so to speak, and the big this is people. Mm. Of all the things that you learn in building a company, I would say people is the most important. If you if you have a good team around you, that's a harbinger of success. And the second thing related to people is culture. Of all the indicators of a successful company, culture is right at the top of the list. You would be surprised. You think, oh, it's got to be the market you're going after. No. Culture is number one. If you have the right culture, and actually Stanford University did a study on this, you'll find out that if you have the right culture and the right team, your chances of success skyrocket. So culture of all things that you do is probably the most important thing. So those two things, I think, are the most important things. Then everything else, there's other things that go with this. But it's really everything comes back to team because good teams eventually find good markets. 
And, you know, there's this law that you and I were talking about before the, before the show called Rashliff's Law. And it kind of relates to, you know, what comes first, you know, team or market. And this is, by the way, a very famous venture capitalist named Andy Rashliff. Uh, and he has this law he calls Rashliff's Law, which essentially says market always wins. No matter what it is, the market will always win. And I think he's correct. Yet, I think he comes at it more from a venture capitalist perspective than a founder's perspective, because as a founder, team always wins. So his laws are right. You want to choose the right market, but a good team will naturally select the right market. That's the key. So if you focus on having a good team and you really go after the best of the best, you're naturally probably going to find a really good market to go after and therefore rationalist law comes true. That's why, and I was nodding, we're not recording the videos, nodding. I've yeah. got rationalist law and then I got a plus sign. And <laughs> and in that plus sign, so you mentioned this in the book. So you mentioned, and by the way, this is this is brilliant. Uh, you mentioned fanaticism, integrity, yeah. smarts, and cult- cultural fit. So it's all of those. And I again, you, yes. again, you bring that up and I, I love it. In addition to product market fit, right? Yes, very much so. So yeah, I, I just find it odd, Brett, that in MBA school, why is it that we don't get taught a lot about culture and teams? It's usually on operations, finance, some of those hard skills. Why, why mm-hmm. don't we get that education about culture? Because it seems like it's always the hardest thing to do. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't know. <laughs> since, I'm, since I'm not on the on the board of trustees in any of these schools, I don't know. I don't know the answer of why. I think MBAs have improved over the years. I think uh, is my guess. And certainly, when I look at like the curriculum, uh, you know, at Stanford and places like that, they really do try and bring in, you know, executives from industry to explain to people what a startup is all about. But, you know, part of this, part of the challenge is, you know, it's one thing if you've got 20 years of experience and you're starting a company. It's another thing if you're coming fresh out of school and somebody's talking about fanaticism and, and the importance of culture and fit and all, all these different things, you just don't know up from down. And I think there's this misperception that most startup founders, and most successful startup founders are young you know, 20-somethings like Mark Zuckerberg was or Bill Gates was. And I think you really have to look at the industries they're going after. You know, if you look at Facebook, that was a brand new industry. So you could be 20 years old with no real experience and you could screw up and make all sorts of mistakes um, because of that. However, if you were going after the business that I was going after, which was the semiconductor world, which is a much more established industry, if you're 20 years old and you're trying to start a company, you're going to fall on your face because that is a very unforgiving world. If you don't understand that world, you won't win. So that is a, that's a large part of all of this. And I think it's very hard when you're young and, and you're going to start a company and you think you know everything. And the reality is you don't. So again, we're talking to Brett Fox, the name of the book. It just came out, is it September, early September? Or Yes, it did, early September. So the name of the book is Learn How to Take a Punch, Love It. And the subtitle is, I'm going to let you say it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, oh yes, that's right. I'm sorry, I, I totally, I am totally forgetting the subtitle of my book, but now, I, now I'm building. Now I building your startup isn't a it, marathon, it's it, a... It's no, it's it's a it's a prize fight. Exactly, yeah. and Thank and the why isn't that embarrassing? I totally forgot no this no it, no that's completely okay. I don't want to steal your thunder. How how has the reception been so far? I mean, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, the reception's been really good. My book got all the way up to like number five in the category of venture capital on Amazon. Excellent, uh, which is pretty good. So it, it's doing quite well. So Brett, are are you at a season of life where you're spending most of your time now uh, consulting and working with startup founders? Um, is, is that correct? Yeah, it's pretty much 90% of my time, I would say, is working with startups, startup founders, helping them, advising them, coaching them. All those types of things is my primary 
business these days. I also work with hedge funds in New York uh, on various things regarding M&A and, and public companies. That's my other thing that I do. But that it's kind of funny. That is financially really lucrative, but intellectually, it's not really that interesting. Do you work mainly with companies out in Silicon Valley? No, actually all around the world. I have clients in uh, pretty much every continent on the planet except for Antarctica. That is incredible. Yeah. Now, do, do clients come to you or do you go to them? I mean, No, they, they, they come to me, uh, which is nice, which means I can be really selective with who I work with, which I like. That's again, that's great. We talked yeah. before we started, before we hit record, we were talking about Quora. You've got over, well, not over, you're about to hit 40 million views. Yeah. You've been featured in Huffington Post, which is now, I think, HuffPost, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, you've been in Forbes. You've been in a couple yeah. other uh, publications. Yeah. So, and yeah. Magazine, Apple News, um, The Observer. Yes. So a lot of different publications. So you definitely have an X factor. So, mm-hmm. and, and again, I was just talking about how much I enjoy your writing. So, I mean, gosh, you're so busy, but yet you take the time to write these lengthy. I mean, we're talking sometimes a 600 word answer. So I really appreciate mm-hmm. that. But Thank since, you. since you're consulting, that does lead to a question I'm, I'm dying to ask. Sure. So one of the first questions that I had on our interview arc was, how how do you do how do you help that CEO to maybe pick? Maybe they've already brought on a team, but maybe mm-hmm. now it's time to maybe maybe that person's not right. Yes. How do you help them make those decisions? Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest challenges you have is that the people you start with are not necessarily the people you finish with. And you see CEOs to their credit having intense loyalty, at least the people that I work with, having intense loyalty to the people they started with. And part of the challenge that you have is you you can't just tell people, hey, you got to go fire your co-founder, even though you know that's the answer. So you have to kind of ask them questions and lead them there and show them the damage that's going to happen if they don't take action. Because the problem is, is that it's not just about the co-founder. It's about the rest of the company in that you have an obligation as a CEO to your investors and to your team and to the other founders and the other employees of the company to do the right thing. And if there is somebody that stands out because they they were good early and they're not good later, well, you have to take action. How you take action is up to you, but you have to take action. So that can take a long period of time. Like for example, I'm working with a founder of a company and he's been around now for seven years and he has come to the realization that uh, his co-founder needs to go. And that has been a several month conversation that we've been having. Uh, In fact, I'm going to talk to him tomorrow morning and I'm curious because he had finally gotten to the point where it's like, okay, you have to go do something about this. And it's been, it's time, you know, to go do something about this because he, he does not have an option anymore. Uh, you know, if he doesn't do anything, he's likely to hurt the company in many different ways. And I think he's there. I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out tomorrow about that uh, in, in terms of what he decides to do. You touch on this in the book. I would think the hardest role to let go would be the CTO, especially if they're either a, a co-founder or they're one of the first employees because I mean, they have all that intellectual property that may be up in their mind. So is, is that also, I mean, extremely yeah. difficult? Because not only do yeah. you have to let them go, and then you got to figure out the right person to yeah, replace yeah. them with, and then the whole timing yes. thing. Yes, absolutely. Letting anybody go is really tough. So the basic rule is when you let somebody go, always look for somebody better. That's what I always tell people is, okay, great. You know, it's, it's really tough. It's really hard. Emotionally, it sucks. And it's always going to suck. Whenever you fire somebody, it should be painful. That is just part of the process. If you care, and that's kind of a good litmus test for you anyways as a CEO, is that the day you don't care anymore and you're so callous that it doesn't matter when you let somebody. But having said that, you know, okay, the goal is replace this person with somebody better so that you're continually improving your team. Uh, that that's a really important part of the process. Now, this is easier said than done, and it can take a long time because the reality is to the other point that you just raised is that there's never a perfect time. 
you know, to let somebody go. There's all, you know, there's always, there's always something going on. There's always an issue. And this is the problem. If I go back to that fellow I was talking about, that's, that was his dilemma was, Oh my God, I've got this going on. So maybe I shouldn't let my co-founder go. Well, what are you going to do? Because there's always going to be a reason. There's always going to be an excuse. And you just kind of have to bite the bullet sometimes and just do it because the minute you do it, yes, you will feel sadness and everything else, but you'll also feel like a cloud's been lifted off of you. I've seen this every single time. And then the other thing that happens almost guaranteed is that there will be one or more people on your team that will come up to you and say something like this. What took you so long? We knew that the co-founder wasn't cutting it. What took you so long? And that's almost always what happens because the rule is you're always the last one to know as the CEO. When you talked about culture in the book, you put a smile on my face. So here are three names. And by the way, I think I need to add a fourth one. And yeah. I'll tell you it is in just a minute. Uh, you mentioned Netflix, yep. Zappos, and yep. Sandy Koufax, yep. which I thought was awesome. And by the way, I want to throw in Wayfair. I've been doing some business with Wayfair. And it's like, man, their mm-hmm. customer service, they are killing it. They're awesome. Yeah. But anyway, those three, Netflix, Zappos, Sandy Koufax, what yeah. the heck are you talking about? <laughs> I thought it was awesome. I thought it was great. Yeah. So, so Netflix... Um, Netflix has a great document, which anybody can look up online. It's called their culture manifesto and it's all in PowerPoint format. It's really simple to follow through on. And it's a blueprint uh, for how to manage a company and how to think about scaling a business. Because the problem is when you think about the challenge that all businesses had, as we get bigger, what do we do? We add more and more rules. And essentially if you boil down uh, Reed Hastings, he's the founder and CEO of Netflix. If you boil down his message, it's essentially this. As your company gets bigger, fight that urge. Reduce the rules. Trust your team. Give more power and empower, which also fits Zappos in terms of their customer service model. Because customer service, if you think about it, it's a wonderful way to differentiate any business. Yes. So if you really think hard you know, and, and you make your customer service outstanding. So people love engaging with you. And again, you empower people, which is what Zappos did incredibly well, whether rather than these scripts that we're all used to, you know, the classic customer service script, if we all have to deal with, you know, the cable company or direct TV or whomever, there's always, well, I can't answer that. You know, you have to go to my manager. This is what I'm entitled to do. And Zappos kind of flips that on its head and essentially empowers all of their people you know, to make decisions. And you can do this in any business. We took that model and did it in our business. Semiconductors of all crazy thing. And there's a way to manage it. And the way you manage it is you have meetings with your team and you listen to their answers and you ask them, why'd you make this decision? Why'd you make that decision? And you can always core, you can always coach and course correct. But you know what you find out is sometimes the creativity of your team and what they do is better than what your script would have done. And customers, because they're getting immediate answers and immediate feedback, really love working with you. Okay, now for Sandy Koufax. So Sandy Koufax, um, for your audience, if anybody out there doesn't know who he is, because he's still alive, but he was he was a starting pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers in the late 50s, early 60s. And there's a great book about him, and this is what was really kind of the onus for me called the, A Lefty's Legacy. I think the author's name was Jane Levy. And uh, I read that book, and it's a book about his perfect game against my Chicago Cubs. Uh, and it talks about, it goes like, it's, it's really well written because it goes back and forth between each inning and part of his life story and everything. But the thing about Koufax as a pitcher was he was a two-pitch starting pitcher. And if you think about Baseball today, most starting pitchers have four or five pitches. And I did not know that. That was, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the thing about him, right? Is that that's what made him so successful was his two pitches were so good and so much better than anything else out there that he couldn't be touched. And some days all he had was one pitch, just his fastball. And that was it. And that's how he became so successful for so long and dominated baseball in a way that nobody's ever seen, you know, since. And that's the lesson in business, is business is about simplicity. If things get too complex, it's a red flag. If you're a technology company, fine, your technology can be complex, but the rest of your business, your mission should be to make it as simple and easy as possible. 
And if you think about that and you make that part of your goal and then you add in the Netflix piece, you add in, uh, add in the other, the, the culture piece, you're on a good track to be really successful in what you do. I want to do a quick shout out to probably one of your favorite pitchers growing up as a kid, Ferguson Jenkins. Oh yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know if, was he a two pitch pitcher as well? He, I think he was a No, he had, he had more, he had, he had more pitches. I think it was, it's really sad. I just saw a tweet from him. You know, who passed away today. Uh, Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan. Yeah. Sad. Man, we're losing a lot of, there's a yes. great baseball team that's passed away this year. Yes. <laughs> so it's amazing. Like in the last few weeks, you look Tom Seaver, Tom Seaver, Bob Joe Gibson. Morgan. My yep. goodness. Yeah. Bob Gibson too. Wow. In the last two weeks, right? You brought up uh, fundraising. And this is very yes. helpful for me. I do not work a lot with startups because I don't have the patience. And <laughs> and and, it, and there's a lot of creativity that's, that's involved. Yeah. So you mentioned fundraising. It can take anywhere from six to 12 months. And in your case, you mentioned even two, two years. years. But yeah. you want to expand on that a little bit. Uh, again, I, I know we're talking maybe a blanket statement, but mm-hmm. for those startups, Six to 12. Is that a good rule of thumb then? Yes, absolutely. And depending upon financial conditions, it can take more. So here we are in the world of COVID. It doesn't really seem to have affected anything, but it could. So when you think about it, here's why it takes long. And this is one of the things I learned as an entrepreneur in residence is that for every 100 face-to-face meetings that a venture capitalist will take, they will invest in one company. And for every three, uh, uh, three, uh, three companies that approach them, they will maybe meet with one of those three. So that means 300 to one is your odds of getting an investment from a VC. Think about that. So why does it take so long? Well, my goodness, you got to meet with a lot of people. So when you, so my whole thought process when we were raising money is I need to get to at least a hundred face-to-face meetings you know, before we turn the odds in our favor. So that's part of it. Now, part of the process, you think, oh, it goes really fast. Most of the time, it doesn't. Most of the time, you have a meeting, then maybe it takes a couple weeks to get to the second meeting, and maybe to get to four or five meetings, which is maybe how long it typically will take, you know, to raise money, that might take two months, depending upon how how hot your deal is. Now, having said this, I am working with somebody who just raised $50 million in three weeks. So I'm kind of pissed at him. I was kind of laughing with him about it. But in his, this was his third round of funding, and he, had, he raised $50 million in three weeks. Now, why was he able to do this? Well, because he's in a hot area. You know, uh, this is a really hot area that's being in, probably over-invested in right now, and he, he's likely to be one of the winners. And investors know it. So he has competition for his deal. So if you're a founder, how can you move the process along? Well, if there's competition, that's a forcing function for investors. They'll move faster if they know that there's competition and they may lose a deal that they want to win. Otherwise, they'll go at their own pace and then it just takes longer to get it done. So in my case, when we found that second investor, it took us a couple months to close with them, but it took us, you know, was it 22 months to find it? So that's the thing. You've just got to keep knocking and knocking on a lot of doors and stay really persistent, you know, to be able to raise money. That's why I say six to 12 months is a typical average for most people if they're fortunate enough to raise money. Now, the other thing is you may not be able to raise the money. Not all companies are investable. In fact, most companies are not investable by VC standards. That doesn't mean you have a bad company. You just need to understand that because if you try and raise money, from uh, VC funds, and let's say you're successful, but your company really isn't set up to be successful, that almost always is going to lead to disaster. And it's not going to be the venture capitalists who are are going to go away crying. It's going to be you as the founder. I'm having a senior moment. The author of The Hard Thing About Hard Things, he brings up probably the first time I ever heard that term, product market fit. Again, as you can tell, I don't work with a lot of startups. So and you, we talked about this a few minutes ago, but you brought up a concept I've never even thought of ever, product market fit leading indicators. I thought that is, that's a great concept. So mm-hmm. what are some of those leading indicators of product market fit? 
Okay. So when you think about product market fit, so the, so let's start there. So product market fit means that customers are buying your product. Right. In other words, that the market has accepted it. Now there are a whole bunch of traps that people get into when they are starting out. They think, oh, there's also this related concept of what's called a lean startup, which also fits into all of this. And you can think, well, I'm supposed to develop this uh, stripped down product as my first article and it's supposed to be really simple, really easy. But the problem is, is that you can kill the utility of the product if you're not careful. So that's one thing that you have to be really careful about. There has to be something unique, something valuable about what you're doing or else customers are not going to buy your product. So the leading indicators are, is that when you think about all the steps that have to be taken for people to buy from you is first, they have to find you. There has to be interest in, in what you're doing and they have to find you. Uh, second is then they have to somehow or other evaluate your product and start using it in some way, shape or form. And then third, they have to buy from you. So your mission when you're starting out is to make that process as frictionless and as easy as possible for people so that they're likely, you know, to take all the steps that are necessary to go through the whole process. You mentioned the lean startup and, and as I was reading the book, cause I'm, to me, there's two sides of the coin in startups. There's the magic and there's the logic. I see the lean yeah. start. And by the way, push back if you want. I see the lean startup more as uh, more the logic part of, of launching a business, whereas you were hitting in the first part of the book, the magic, the magic. So you're not against necessarily the lean startup, but I would still yeah. like to hear your perspective of the Steve Blanks of the world and the yeah. Eric Reese of the world. Can, can you? Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Steve Blank. I totally believe in the concept of you know saving money, frugality, and everything else. I think that's so important. It's getting lost, and it drives me a little bit insane because there's a lot of dysfunction uh, in venture capital right now because there is this drive, you know, what are called unicorns, these billion-dollar startups. And one of the thing that's ha- one of the things that's happening, which led to um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, which I think we're on the verge of again, was this bubble that happened in startups where the, there were all these overvalued startups that were thrown onto an unsuspecting public who bought them as IPOs and then the startups crashed. I'll give you an example uh, of one that may not be obvious, and that's Uber. I think Uber is a bubble company of all companies because when you look at Uber, they are losing money like mad. Now, that company is worth a huge amount. From an investor perspective, in fact, I know some of the investors in, in Uber, they've made a mint. I mean, that's probably the most successful startup ever from a venture capital perspective. However, it IPO'd and it is losing money like crazy. And I don't know what the stock has done since it IPO'd. I think it's down. And if you're not careful, you know, if you have something that's cash flow negative and is continuing to burn cash, um, eventually that company is going to die because eventually you need to make money. Right. And I think, you know, to the whole concept of lean startup, which is all about, you know, saving money, being frugal and everything else, which I think is a really smart concept, you know, to go after, I call it appropriately frugal in my book, because there are things to spend money on. There are important things to spend money on. From my perspective, I wanted to spend money on my team and I was going to spend money on the tools for the team. But beyond that, you don't need the best office furniture. You don't need to be in the best building. You can do things that are smart to save money. You don't need to be flying around first class. You know, it seems obvious, but there are people out there that don't believe that. So there are things that you can do that are smart to save money and keep your company lean because you don't know when or if you're going to be able to raise your next round of funding. So Making your money last, being smart, being smart about how you spend your money is really important. I think that's the real message that Steve Blank has. I think that's the real message that Eric Reese has. Um, it is not that if you follow these five steps, you're going to be successful. That is not true. So I think that maybe, maybe that's where I differ. And, and that's really the message that I'm trying to send to people is, yeah, use these things as guides because they're smart, but don't think you know, for a second, if I just follow the lean startup methodology, I am going to be successful because you may not be. I would love to be a fly on the wall when you're consulting with a client 
where they're going through that decision to scale. And by the way, I have two concepts of a company that scales. There's the snowflakes of the world that just went public, I think two weeks ago. They're going to get big whether they like it or not. And by the way, I know they want to grow. It's the online database, open mm-hmm. source. They're, I mean, it's going to explode. But then you got the companies who need to be purposeful and need to grease the wheel to start scaling. I want to be on the fly in the wall when you're working with those companies. When do you scale? How do you make those decisions? You probably have to spend some money up front. You need to make sure that you got the bandwidth right. So I'm just, again, that's not really a specific question, but just talk to me a little bit about that whole decision-making process of, okay, time to go from 1 million to 10, from 10 to maybe 50, 100, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, so those are the right measures. So I think it depends upon your financial backing. So I break this up into two groups. The first group are bootstrap startups. In other words, bootstrapping means, in other words, I may have raised some angel funding, some small amount of funding from outsiders, but basically I am surviving and building my company based on my own money. In those groups, this goes to being really careful with your funding. They have to subscribe to the lean startup methodology because if they don't, they die. So in those companies, you're always careful you know, to make sure that you're building a worst case model for your business. Now, on the other side, you have the venture back companies where it's going to be, we can grow a little bit faster because we've got more funding coming in and our investors are pushing us this way. However, in both cases, uh, I would tell you that one of the exercises that I have people work with, work through is what I call this, um, uh, this unencumbered funding, in other words, this idea of, you know, uh, looking at, um, you know, my funding and my business is if there are no constraints, unconstrained, it's what I call an unconstrained model. And in an unconstrained model is assume that you can hire as many people as you want. Assume that you have infinite funding. And then you also can, can assume, okay, how fast can my business grow? And then looking at this business, work backwards in terms of, okay, how many people would I hire? How much money do I need? And then you're going to figure out from that, where are the constraints in the business? Because what most people do is they put constraints on themselves, which are unnecessary. If you start from the reverse, then you'll see where the constraint is. And then depending upon what you do, you can always scale back. So that's one step. And then the other step is financially have different models for your business. Don't assume everything's going to go right. Run your business to a worst case model because there's a general rule in startups. And the general rule is is as follows, is that if you believe, you know, if I believe as a founder, because we're all optimists, right, that my business is going to grow at a certain rate. Well, typically it's going to grow at half that rate and it's going to cost you twice as much money. So slow down your model, see what happens. As you see you're growing beyond your model, you can always increase your hiring. But what's the worst thing that happens is I hire too quickly because most of what's most of my expenses to start up, it's going to be people. And the worst thing in the world is having to lay people off. That just sucks beyond belief. It's really painful to do that. So you want to avoid that at all costs. So you want to, then the way to avoid that is being careful with your hiring and, and careful with what you're doing there and run to a worst case model until you see signs that we're, we're going faster than the worst case model then you can make adjustments. That's, that, that, that answers your question. It That's does. And, and that leads into my next question to VC or not to VC. Yeah. Do, do, do you have, I mean, just acquaintances, peers who are, again, they're business people. And do they have this default answer? Well, I'll just go get some VC money. I mean, do you, do you hear that a lot? You're smiling. Yeah, I got, Well, there's certainly people I know like that. And, and it depends upon who you are and, and what you're trying to do. But there are also people, and I have, I have founders that I work with, which wrestle with this question. And I have two uh, that I can think of right now that are wrestling with this exact question. What's interesting is the further down the road you get, if you start off bootstrapped, uh, the less you need venture capital, because eventually at some point you have enough cash coming into the business where you just don't need more money anymore. So you can run the business without them. Now, the thing is, when you take on venture capital, you lose optionality. That's the thing. So it's not like, I think there's this belief system that, 
you know, VCs are going to help me so much. They're going to add so much value to my business, blah, blah, blah. That's just not true. There are some VCs out there that are really good and really helpful, but most are going to be money people for you. They're going to give you money and not much else. And then there's another group which you want to avoid all costs, which are the disasters, which can, you know, just destroy your business if you're not careful. Um, and even if you are careful, they can still destroy your business. So the reality is, is that you need to be really thinking about what happens if I take on VC money. And let me explain what I mean by this. Because let's say that I have a business which is somewhere between a million dollars and $10 million a year. And let's say that that business is worth $20 million just to make up a number. And I'm going to go raise $5 million or $10 million. And I'm going to give away 20% of my company. Let's say I'm going to raise $5 million, give away 20% of my company. Okay, so we multiply by five. The company is worth $25 million. Um, what do investors want? Well, investors are going to want for a company like that probably 10x on their money. So that means that $5 million has to turn into 50 so what does the company have to be worth? Now, it has to be worth probably around $250 million. Right. So you try and sell your company. Let's say you get an offer six months after you close your funding, and, and suddenly somebody offers you $50 or $75 million for the company. And you're thinking, great, your investors are going to block it, and they're not going to let you do it. And I guarantee that's going to happen because they're looking at this and going, okay, that's nice, but we don't, we're not in this for a 2x gain. We're in this to make 10x. So your optionality goes away. And I think you have to be really careful as a founder when you're thinking about these things. This is why what I call it is alignment. You want to be in alignment with your investors. And if you're not in alignment, bad things happen. Because just you do what you lose. Just to Go quote ahead. you in the book, I apologize, Brett. To quote you in the book, you said that MVP needs to be 10x to 100x better than whatever exists today. Right. Yeah. So mm -hmm. good, good point. I usually tell people that when your dream is far bigger than your checkbook, then, then may, maybe go find some <laughs> uh, VC money. Yeah. Hey, we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to jump in, kind of wrap this up a little bit. Sure. So I want to, I want to tribute uh, Liz Wiseman. She, her name gets brought up a lot because we asked her a couple of questions. She's one of our first interviews. She wrote the book, uh, multipliers. And the two questions we asked, she said, man, I really like those and haven't heard those before. So we're going to repeat them, mm -hmm. but that will be the next question. But I'm looking in the, I'm looking at your office there. You got a ton of books. So yeah, what are some of your favorites? Maybe ones that you like to gift a lot or some that oh, have wow. meant a lot to you in your career. And I know if you're a reader, that's got to be hard. So yeah. So um, the ones that it depends, I, ha I have some go-to business books that I really love. What, what are some of those, Brett? So my go-to business books, well, I'll start with um, just because it's on the top of mind right now, I would say The Art of War by Sun Tzu. I think that's a fabulous book for anybody. Um, the Innovator's Dilemma by Clay Christensen. That's like a Bible. For if you're starting a business, and it's more of a marketing Bible than anything else. So I love that book. Um, then let's see, uh, what the hell is the name of the book? You know, it's funny. I was just thinking about this this morning. So um, there's another book which um, uh, is the fish called, the, and this one is not an obvious book, actually, but I'm going to bring it up, called The Fish That Ate the Whale. That's excellent. That, that's is that the banana that's guy? Rich that's by Rich Cohen is the book. And the, and the book is about Sam Zamuri. And the, the, the banana guy, right? The banana guy. He's called Sam the Banana Man. And the phrase Banana Republic, by the way, can be attributed to him, <laughs> of all things. If you're ever wondering where the, that phrase comes from, he is the one who uh, that can be attributed to. And it's about his adventures building up the banana business as we think about it today and all the things that he ended up doing. And it's a great book on tenacity, fanaticism, uh, all of that. Rags, so Rags to Riches Story. Oh, Rags to Riches Story. It's a great book. Rich Cohen, by the way, is a, a tremendous author, very entertaining author, um, you know, to uh, to read. So I really enjoy his work. So, so that one's a really good one. Um, along the same line, Shoe Dog, which is about Phil Knight, Phil Knight's story. Um uh, building building Nike, which started out as Blue Ribbon Sports, where he was selling shoes out of his car for years. And he almost stopped that company several times. So if you're thinking rags to riches, 
and you're thinking that everything comes easy for people. His story is really where I came up with the idea of fanaticism more than anything else, because that's what kept him afloat. That's what allowed him to succeed was, was that. So those books are great. Then there are other books that I also think about, which are also non-conventional, but are really important because um, one of my big things, when you think about people and you think about building companies and what's really important is communication. And if you want to build a great culture, you have to learn how to communicate. You have to learn how to listen. So there are a few books along those lines, which I really love. The one that I love the most, which I think may be the best business book ever written, is this book called Crucial Conversations. And it's written by a consultancy firm of five different guys. It is a great book. And the reason why it's a great book is because it teaches you how to communicate and it will help you and help you evolve your communication skills in ways you just wouldn't even believe. That's why I, I give that book almost to every single client that I work with because it's just, it's really well done. It's really, really well written. So that one's really good. Um, that so that's probably a, a nice little list for for your uh, for your listeners. Great, great list, great list. So here's the question: TEDx talk. So you've had a chance maybe to think about this. So at your local community college, or it could be a larger university, uh, what would be that TEDx talk for you, Brett Fox? I think the TEDx talk would be about um, tenacity and never giving up that would be what I would talk about because life throws you lots of different curveballs, And there's a lot of stuff we can't control in life, but we can control ourselves and how we deal with things. None of us, I don't care who it is, unless you're just unbelievably lucky. We all have stuff in our life, you know, and it all looks so green from the other side and so beautiful. And we're all struggling. We're all challenged. And it's how you deal with adversity, which allows you to be successful in life. So that's the thing I would like to talk about in my TEDx talk. And I think you did a great job at least bringing out the emotional, the human aspect of that in your first yeah. chapter. I, th you. I thought, good job. I've not <laughs> been in your shoes, but I serve men and women who have dealt, you know, have to do. So it's like, I'm having to hold up those left arms or right arms. Like, no, get, yeah. get back up. Now, usually they do on their own accord, but yeah. So I know you're busy. I know you're swamped. You've got a lot of work, global clients. But but if someone wants to reach out to you, is it okay for them to ping you in LinkedIn and say, I'd like to uh, bend your ear a little bit or, or just pick your brain? I mean, do you, is, that how, is that the best way for people to well, The best out? way for people to reach me and find me is go to my website, www.brettjfox.com. That's the best way. There's all sorts of free stuff there for people. Um, if you want to reach out to me, you can always do it through there. Um, and you can ask me any question you want and I might not answer you immediately, but I will answer typically. Uh, so that's the best way. There's tons of free stuff there. There's videos there. There's all sorts of articles there for people. 99% of what I do, I give away, you know, and, and that's kind of been one of the most gratifying things about what I do is that I'm able to help tons of people that I will, will never know, will never speak to. And just about every day I get uh, a note from somebody saying, thank you. And that is really nice and puts a smile on your face at the end of the day. Your book is great. We'll have that in show, the show notes. We'll have your website. Uh, we'll also have the Quora pro profile because I would like people to be mm -hmm. following you there because your writing is just, again, outstanding. And I do want to, I want to throw an idea your way. Sure. So you, I'm calling you the startup king now. <laughs> um, so have you watched any of the master classes? So masterclass.com. I, I think they were, you get a chance when we, when we, when we hang up here in zoom, I guess you don't, you yeah. X out, but yeah. go to masterclass.com. There's man, there's up to maybe close to a hundred, uh, master classes. There's only three in business. Um, really? I think Howard J Schultz, Howard Schultz, he's done one. Uh, the guy, the former uh, CEO with Disney, he's done a master class. But you have a lot of them who are by, by writers, actors. I think there's a one on tennis, but it's called masterclass.com. They are done mm -hmm. br brilliantly. And I think they are VC backed, by the way. We mm -hmm. need a master class for startups. In my humble opinion, I believe that would sell. People would be interested 
in some type of a startup class. And as I was going through your book, actually twice, I'm thinking, Brett ought to be that guy. And, it, it, and if it's not you, you and somebody else, but go to masterclass.com. I want to see somehow you affiliated with the masterclass. All right, cool. I like the challenge. Thank you. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to your hosts, the no-name CFOs, Mark and Bruce. Again, I appreciated what what Brett brings to the table on culture building, but how, how do you find as a CFO, I know you may not actually be doing the one who's onboarding or interviewing or recruiting, but that's difficult, isn't it? It is difficult. I think though having a getting some assessments maybe will give you a starting point. Um, but then also there there's a there's a bit of a there's a bit of intuition that has to come into it as well. And I think it's you, you, if you build a team that has stood the test of time, that has proven that it can work well together, that team will is suited to make decisions to try to judge cultural fit, but you're not always going to get it. It's not always going to be perfect. And in, in some cases you'll also have to be prepared to say culture is important. And at, at and if it appears as if, and it, and I think you got to do it at the early on, if it appears as if there's not the, the cultural fit, isn't a good one, it might be time to go a different direction. And and that that takes uh, that takes commitment. Uh, it takes a level of courage, and you also set yourself up for having to start a process over again if that, if that's if that's what takes place. Culture is a very important thing, and even in the world. And I think we we listened, we've heard it from you know. I say some more you know financial based discussions, private equity based discussions. Culture is a big deal, even in private equity deals and and private equity relationships and finding the right partner. And also when the partners come in, finding somebody who's going to fit the culture that's going to be successful. Tough question. What's harder? Recruiting, building the team, or individual player development? What's the hardest See, I can see you. See, we're we're on a video, so I can see you. You're you're making a face. That's hard. It's not a trick question, by the way. So recruiting, building the team, or developing individual team members. Ooh. Now was that either a bad that, question or a good question that there's a pause? Oh, that, I think it's a great question. I don't I don't know. I don't know if it's tied, you know, it's we quote Tony if it's tied for first. Um, Tony well, LaRusso, for those of you outside of the St. Louis or Chicago markets, um, I think re- recruiting recruiting done right is is challenging, and it can be done right there, but it takes effort. Um, it takes effort to to do the work, and it takes effort to not settle. So you know maybe that's the 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 hard part of recruiting is not settling once you just get tired. Um, the developing it's, it's easy. It's so easy to not work on developing individuals day in and day out. There's there's it's rare that somebody is looking over a leader's shoulder and saying, have you developed your people today? So you have to personally, it's a personal commitment to be, committed to developing the individuals and and doing it the right way and not giving up when it's not perfect. So, you know, giving that little bit of extra, you know, a little bit of extra responsibility, see how they handle it. And then a little bit more and a little bit more. And when it doesn't go right, coach it, do some correction and start the start the cycle over again. But it's, you, you have to, it, it takes courage it, and it takes stamina and it takes commitment to do it the right way. So I think I, I think I just defaulted to the developing individuals just because it's, it's easy to let yourself off the hook and not do it. Are you going to ask me the question? Yes. What do you think? What do I think? I was, 
I, I was just trying to catch my breath. <laughs> what I think is I'll, I'll answer that question with the question. What's more important, oxygen or blood in the human body? That's my answer. Wow. Is that deep? <laughs> oh, it's deep. I don't think wow. you can separate. I think they're they're all important. I, I think, and, and you better start at the recruiting. That's the, and that is the hard part. And a lot of leaders they they screw that up. Uh, that's why Brett brings it up. It's easy to get that part wrong, but you're not done yet. You're not done then. You know, we we are flawed people. We have biases that we bring to the table when it comes. That's why we like to have third parties. They they help to eliminate that bias. That we, as people who go out hiring, we 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 have overconfidence. So it's not over, but I'm just saying they're all three important. That may yeah. be the easy way out, but to me, it's hard to to, to to single one out. That's not a cop out. That that's 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 not a cop out because it's one without the other is a waste. So again, I, we want to thank Brett Fox again. Get the book. The, the name of the book is. Learn how to take a punch. The subtitle, Building Your Startup Isn't a Marathon, It's a Prize Fight. And I agree with that. That's why I don't work with a lot of startups. They, it, it's hard. it takes a lot of patience. And, and I think there's as much art as there is science, which I, I completely not agree with that after going through this great uh, playbook uh, of Brett's. So anyway, get the book and... Uh, and I'm anxious to get your feedback about it too. Yeah, I'm um, looking forward to I'm looking forward to reading that. Actually, just uh, go ahead and uh, go ahead and bringing that on now, and we'll, uh, that'll probably be weekend reading. Enjoyed our discussion as always. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Stay well, everybody out there. Please practice love and empathy, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.